and everybody has their own ideas of what healthy food is, right? So we had to like constantly remind them of, of, you know, the philosophy behind it. And, um, and definitely they were, you know, one of the meetings that I was presenting, like somebody was doing some chit chat in the background and Kobe was like, you know, knocking on the table and he was like, (laughs) you know, pay attention. This is important. Hey everyone. Thanks for tuning into power athlete radio. What do teeth, biological symmetry, and injury have to do with what we consume? Well, everything, according to Dr. Kate Shanahan. If you're tackling a new or improved nutrition protocol, you'll want to know what four rules to live by in order to be successful. Here it is, episode 636. All right, we welcome Dr. Kate Shanahan, the leading authority on nutrition and human metabolism, and the author of Deep Nutrition, Why Genes Need Traditional Food. And a shout out to Food Lies, Ryan Sanders, for connecting us a few episodes ago, 632. And we're really excited for this one. When he name dropped you, Dr. Kate, John and I lit up and we're real excited to have you. So thank you very much. Thank you, Tex and John. It's really a pleasure to meet you guys. Yeah, well, thanks for coming on. Um, You know, as we were talking a little pre-production, your book was extremely impactful to me. Uh, Dr. Craig Bueller gave it to me. I mean man, I'm really dating myself almost 12 or 13 years ago, your first edition and, uh, the stuff that you did in terms of like the Fibonacci sequence, the Marcus mass, which would I love to get into a little bit more of that was extremely impactful for me in terms of developing power athletes methodology, which is the idea of fostering and developing athleticism and the idea of symmetry of movement and being able to recognize this stuff and then realize, you know, why modern man is so broken when these should be just human efficient movements. So, um, you know, I got into this, uh, like, you know, like I was telling you earlier, I played in the NFL for a decade and my rookie year, I worked with a guy named Mauro De Pasquale who, uh, wrote a book called the anabolic diet and, um, you know, the stone age diet from, uh, Vince Garanda was a big piece of that. And so I was already kind of on this train and when I read your book, it answered a lot of questions. So I thank you for it. Well, I'm so glad to hear that you're using it that way, like to help an athlete help assess an athlete because uh, you're actually the first person that's really kind of adopted it in that particular way with the symmetry of movement. Um, and I'll just tell you a tiny bit about like why I got into this in the first place, because it relates to this question uh, or it relates to this topic of symmetry of form and ideal growth. Um, so I was a very serious uh, track and cross country athlete in high school and in college, Uh, but I was completely plagued with injuries and it seemed like it was like not fair, you know, that, that I would have, I had more than my fair share of injuries. And then there were people that just like, just plowed through. And like one guy I knew just sort of up and ran a hundred mile race one day without really doing any special training for it. It was just like, Oh, there's a 24 hour marathon. And, uh, do you want to come? We're doing it next weekend. And, and he was like, okay, sure. And he just ran and the hundred miles, which took less than 24 hours. And, um, while we all did like a relay around a track, so we ran hundred miles around the track. It was totally fine. His whole family, totally fine. Like they, they're, 
their whole family was just like amazing. And I didn't know what the issue was. I thought it was genetics. I thought there was something biochemically maybe wrong with me. But when I ultimately kind of had my, I guess, breakthrough in understanding the source of health, um, it made a lot of sense to me because what I recognized was that my skeletal structure was not developed in the ideal way and form equals function. And so when you see an athlete, like you were talking about a pre-production, um, when you see that athlete that just like the way they move, everything about the way they move just seems so graceful and beautiful. That's generally a reflection of this particular geometric uh, structure that informs ideal growth, which enables movement to be optimal. Like there's really a lot of uh, geometry in our bodies. And that, uh, that has to do with something I talk about in deep nutrition, the Fibonacci uh, sequence and this ratio uh, that enables growth to occur in a way that keeps our body symmetrical, right? So one of the cool things about our, the human body and like pretty much every, <clears throat> every animal has this kind of ability. Like, so if you take your hand and you just make a fist, See all the fingers like line up like that. That's because each digit is a reflection of this ratio where uh, the ratio is 1.618. And so like each bone is, uh, has that ratio to the next smaller bone and the next smaller bone. And that ratio is just like so perfectly magical that it enables things like this to happen. Because I mean, imagine if you were trying to make a fist and like, you know, this finger was two inches longer, right? You would have, this is the, the whole saying about like, what's stronger five or one, right? Well, it's the one well, that's because of the Fibonacci sequence. And that relates to diet and nutrition because it's, it's kind of like our bodies are guided by two forces. One is just the physics of the universe that um, comes from our diet. And the other is our genetics and our DNA. And the two of those together uh, create a healthy human when everything goes right in terms of nutrition and genetics. And when it doesn't, then you have somebody who's prone to sports injuries like I was. So it wasn't just that like my, I'm physically like not perfectly symmetrical. Also, I wasn't, I didn't really get like good nutrition growing up. So I didn't have very good connective tissue. And if you haven't talked to, you probably have talked about things like fascia and um, if you, you probably had maybe Kelly Starrett, has he been on the show? Oh yeah. <laughs> so uh, he talks about, um, and, and a lot of people talk about like how the fascia in our body that connects our muscles together kind of acts like a spring and you load the spring when you stretch it. And then it, uh, when you, you know, when you move, you're using some of muscle like if you've done it right, if you've got your motion right, you're using muscle to make the you know movement go in the direction you want. But it's just the physics of your fascia that act like a rubber band that's been wound up at springs and gives you like some effortless energy to your movement. And that depends on fascia is all built out of this stuff called connective tissue, which your skin is built out of, or tendons are built out of, or ligaments are built out of. And um, fascia, if you don't really know what it is, if you've ever seen, like, if you've had a strip, a New York strip, um, you know how there's that edge of the fat and then there's like a really hard part that's 
chewy. That's not exactly fat. That is fascia. That's like a fibrous bundle around the muscle. Every one of our muscles has a little fibrous bundle around it to keep it separated from the other muscles so that they glide over each other properly. And that's another huge part of why athletes get injuries, because if the fascia doesn't have the right lubrication, then it doesn't glide. And every little motion causes these fibers that are going in different directions to start fraying each other. So there's just so much that you can do with nutrition and good diet that helps support your athletic parts. And the key part is that connective tissue because muscles are built out of it too. Uh, bone is built out of it. You know, everything important to an athlete is built out of connective tissue. Yeah. The, um, we've had Cal Dietz on and he has a deal called uh posture restaurant, uh, where is it? RPR restaurant, uh, restorative posture performance, performance reset. reset. And the idea is that dysfunction is stored within the fascia. And so his whole deal is about uh, just a, you know, what they call wake up drills is three minutes of just manipulation to try to improve movement based on just doing some basic myofascia release. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, that that's important because um, we do know, I mean, there's like lots and lots of uh, fields of study that are similar in, in terms of physical ways that you can help your tissues work better or recover better. And, um, yeah, so that there's something uh, similar to that in the school of, uh, like Swedish massage mm-hmm. where there's just real gentle, like transverse rubbing across like a sore muscle. You kind of just rub transversely really gently for five minutes. And I've seen that really help people with chronic, even like non-athletic injuries, but like, you know, we're all in front of typewriters and doing mousing and you just rub up and down in the like the right on the side of your shoulder blade, the inside of your shoulder blade between uh, towards your spine, there's a muscle there that usually gets really sore uh, on whatever your dominant hand is that does the mouse. And just rubbing that up and down for a few minutes is exactly that. And it really helps. Mm-hmm. So what, what you, what you're kind of getting at is um, you observed durability. And this is something that's very true in the NFL. Certain players are just more durable than others. Like for me, example, like I dislocated fingers and reset them in between plays. Um, you know, I took a helmet to the shin and broke my leg and played 17 weeks on a broken leg and didn't notice. And uh, there's just oh really God. interesting stuff where players are extremely durable and injuries happen and they're able to just to keep persevering. Whereas other guys I played with who were real talented, one injury and they were never able to ever play again. So I think what you're talking about is like durability. And I always thought it was a combination of not only like a history of training, nutrition, and just genetics, and sometimes just a little bit of willpower. Yeah, it's, all of those are important. Um, However, I like to emphasize the amount of it that's beyond people's control, you know, not to make them feel hopeless, but to kind of say, it doesn't mean that it's your willpower or that there's some, just some other like additional, uh, you know, thing you, you, you need to be doing necessarily beyond nutrition. I mean, nutrition is really the, the very, very first, um, thing that I think anybody who's injury prone should be like I was, um, should be looking to, because you can't out train or out manipulate a bad diet. I mean, everybody knows that. And, um, and there's just a lot left on the table in terms of nutrition that um, that athletes never hear about because modern nutrition science is is uh, in the dark ages. I mean, it's gone into the dark ages. Uh, this is why I keep writing books. Our nutrition knowledge was better before World War II 
than it is currently. Doctors were doctors and dietitians. Well, there were dietitians is like a, kind of a new thing. There weren't a lot of dietitians. It's kind of a new field. Um, but doctors and people who were involved in health in any way really uh, had a much firmer grasp on what is a healthy, balanced diet than we do now. It's um, it's uh, sad that we are kind of kept in the dark a, a little bit or a lot about what you can do for your health. Well, well, we're not. <laughs> not uh, yeah. <laughs> uh, I'd like to think that, um, uh, you know, uh, where do you think this first started? I mean, like I, uh, you know, I was reading Rob Wolf's Sacred Cow book and they talked about like the Victorian era. There was a huge deal where, uh, you know, health was at a forefront and people ate better and they had a ton of different issues. Like where was the point where we kind of like almost, uh, you know, took all this historical knowledge that we knew in terms of health and performance of what made bigger, stronger, healthier, more durable people, and then just kind of did a 180 U-turn and went into the dark ages. Yeah, it has a lot to do with what happened in 1948 with a, um, a medical society called the American Heart Association that at that time was a about 30, 40 year old association, kind of a very small underfunded professional medical society peopled by physicians who specialized in heart health. And um, at the time it, it went, it underwent a massive transformation because uh, they were kind of um, complaining about not having enough money to do research. And uh, somebody suggested, well, why don't we do some industry funding, right? Like there's gotta be some synergies, that kind of talk. And uh, unfortunately they uh, aligned with a vegetable oil industry. Um, they got a huge infusion of cash, $1.7 million in 1948 dollars is at least 10 times as much now from a company called Procter & Gamble that made a product called Crisco, uh, which was made from cottonseed oil. And they also sold cottonseed oil. And ever since then, our, uh, the American Heart Association has led the nutrition conversation. And they're the ones that really took it down a dark alley. Uh, uh, you know, I mean, and, and, and really, I mean, to extend the metaphor, uh, they beat it up, right? They beat up <laughs> nutrition science and like left it for dead. <laughs> Um, and it's just gotten kind of more, uh, snowballing it's created. It's like, it's become this monster now where the idea that saturated fat is unhealthy and these oils like that cottonseed oil that are polyunsaturated, just different chemistry. Um, the idea though, that saturated fat is, is unhealthy. That came from the American heart association. And it has a lot, it was never proven and, um, it, it's, it keeps being unproven. <laughs> well, the, uh, didn't it start with Ansel Keys as well and his seven country study. And what was that? 1959, which got disproven a few months later and nobody told him. And then now all of a sudden you have this entire market driven towards statins trying to reduce cholesterol and the, you know, the vilification of, uh, saturated fat in terms of cholesterol and heart disease, which has been proven. 19, over and over. 1958. Oh, uh, yeah, 1958. I mean. Like, yes. Yeah. What I just told you was the backstory as to how uh, Ansel Keys like, had any um, any purchase. So, like, he had been massaging his career for 20 years before that study came out. So, when he, when it did, like, 
the study itself was kind of full of caveats. Like it, it even said, like, this is just correlation, but he like never publicly talked about it that way. And he had so many connections by that point in his career. He was connected to Paul Dudley White, who was the phys- personal cardiologist for President Eisenhower. He and, and the um, president at, at, of the American Heart Association. So Ansel Keys had all this, had engineered himself all this influence. And so the influence overrode the science. How many times have we seen that happen? Yeah. So, uh, so that's why, right? That's why we believe this. It's, it's still, uh, you know, doctors are still trained, mistrained to believe that, you know, animal fat is unhealthy. We should avoid butter and we should be eating, um, you know, I can't believe it's not butter and other hydrogenated worse products and, and the seed oils, which are the worst. Seed oils are worse than trans fats. Yeah, it's... Um... It seems like, uh, for me personally, I mean, the athletic performance associated with eating well uh, has been, for me, uh, unmistakable. And so it was really interesting when I retired from the NFL. And, uh, you know, being in the NFL is like living in a bubble where all your friends are NFL players and everything's kind of ramped on performance. And when I retired and kind of entered this bigger bubble, I was amazed at how misinformed people were. And uh, it was like, uh, this is how big, strong people have always eaten. And, you know, I mean, this is how I've, you know, been able to do what I've been able to do. And I'm, uh, it's, it's been something for over a decade where we've almost been confused. And especially what's even more interesting is people's willingness to hold on to a broken ideology. And when you try to explain it to them, they like cling to this stuff. And, uh, I actually figured, um, it's because food is such an emotional connection for people that once they develop this emotional connection, it's like a terrible relationship and they'll cling to it and they'll cling to it because admitting that, you know, what they've been taught was wrong is, is harder than actually, you know, or is easier, I guess, or harder, however you look at it, (laughs) than actually coming to the true consequence, which is the diet that they're eating is the worst one they could be consuming. Changing the way you think is one of the hardest things to do because you don't even sometimes know where to begin. Like when you're told that something that you believe in is wrong, you have to kind of hang on to your original thought because when you hear it's wrong, it can be very like scary because then you're like, okay, well, if that's wrong, what else is wrong and what else am I doing? And oh my gosh, my whole world is just about to unravel. And so, um, you know, you're a hundred percent right. And it, it all begins in the mind and it really all begins with the mindset of like, okay, uh, maybe I need to learn something. Right. So if you think about it, not as like, I'm wrong, but like, what else is there? What, what's an opportunity that I might be missing? Um, and that in fact is exactly how we got hooked up with the Lakers. You had emailed me the question, like, how did that opportunity come along? Um, well, it didn't, it doesn't stumble. We didn't stumble into my husband did some pretty clever social engineering to get Gary Vitti on the phone. And he used the language of like, well, there's just, you know, stuff you're leaving on. There's tools you're leaving on the table. There's missing opportunities. And that's um, when uh, they want, they, he wanted to read the book and he did. And um, it made sense. So um, that was how we got connected. And, um, and, and we, and this was in like 2011 or so, and uh, we completely um, recreated their entire feeding program. Like whenever the athletes were fed by us and not necessarily at home, but by under, uh, under the Lakers, like while they were still on the pay on the clock, right. Would be in the training facility, would be in the airplanes, it would be in the hotels and it would be in the stadiums. So like many, many places, um, mm-hmm. we completely like revamped their 
their, their way of eating in alignment with the deep nutrition principles, like the deep nutrition principles outline the strategies of all traditional human cultures, what they did to nourish their bodies and extract the most nutrition from their environment. And the people, the folks like that, um, were paying attention to it. Uh, I mean, miraculous things happen. Like, like all of them at one point, um, lost weight. Like that had never happened before. And, um, when Tim DeFrancesco, who you may have had on your show, he was a Lakers trainer, uh, for a long time. Um, he, um, uh, he showed the numbers to the manager, Mike Kupchak, and the manager said, this can't be right. I mean, it had never, ever happened before that all of their body composition numbers improved mm-hmm. all at once. Um, and, and other like amazing stories, miraculous health turnarounds, including Dwight Howard um, and uh, Kobe Bryant, uh, even though he kept getting other injuries. Um, but, uh, oh, and Meta World Peace, um, he had a meniscus surgery and he was playing again instead of the six weeks he was playing, he was on the court again in something like 11 days. Um, Doc, before you get rolling, can you, uh, for the people that haven't read your book or maybe aren't as familiar with the protocol, can you give us a little bit of, you know, overview of like the deep nutrition protocol and more importantly, the, you know, what you implemented with the Lakers? Yeah. So there's two parts to it. One is what not to do. And the number one main thing that I spent a lot of time making sure the Lakers were not doing was eating the seed oils, which are the the soy, corn, canola, cottonseed. You guys have talked about those probably a lot. Okay, great. Um, So, but they're in everything. Like they were in uh, the airplane food. They were in the, um, the fancy hotel food. Like these are four and five star hotels. Um, So it's really hard to keep them out of the Lakers bodies. Um, They're certainly in airplane food, uh, but we got that out. And then the, we also kind of de-emphasized fueling with sugar and carbohydrates and in favor of fueling with their own body fat, which is how the human athlete has always optimized their performance throughout history, body fat, not Gatorade. Imagine that. Mm-hmm. Um, and, uh, and so, so that was the, the don'ts. And then the do's were the kind of healthy, you know, animal fats, which was really at that time, you know, Gary, Gary Beatty was a head trainer and Gary Beatty had grown up in the low fat era. So, I mean, to get him to understand, to abandon all of that stuff that, you know, to, he had basically believed for 40 years was, uh, amazing. I mean, it's amazing that he was able to do that because very few people who've been giving that kind of advice for that amount of time can consider that their, their advice might not have been good. So, I mean, he deserves a lot of props for that. And he bought into the whole thing, which includes, so not just healthy fats, but so healthy fats come, came traditionally mainly from animal products. So the, the strategy there that we um, discovered that is common to all traditional cultures that helps get us plenty of healthy animal fat is the, the third pillar, which I call of the four pillars, there's only four. Uh, meat on the bone. So meat on the bone means you're eating the whole animal. You're not like do it, trimming the fat. You're not making it skinless and you are saving those uh, connective tissues, the tendons and the bones and 
the uh, the joints, that white stuff around the end of the chicken bone and boiling that and extracting the nutrient by, by doing that is extracting a very important nutrient, uh, set of nutrients actually that are nowhere else in the food supply. This is not something that you can actually even get if you're not including animal fats because plants don't make this stuff. And um, it's a collection of, of nutrients that there's a lot of supplements now selling these things, including glycosaminoglycans and chondroitin sulfate and collagen peptides and collagen hydrolysate and hyaluronic acid. So all these things I just mentioned, people just got them all in the form of traditional soups and gravies and stocks and stews and stuff that they cooked just using traditional principles. So that was like the most popular aspect among the players uh, because it tasted really good. They just loved, we had an excellent chef who's still there, who's still doing this actually, by the way, the players just don't really have a clue because there's not like the, the management now is not like explaining to them why this is like not just the tastiest food they've ever had, but also the most nutritious. This is just the way we eat. It's probably how they skin it now. Right. This is just what's for dinner. Right, right, exactly. And so like the, all the meat on the bone stuff was absolutely like people just love, they love the soups. They love the gravies. They love the stews that the chef whose name is Sandra Padilla um, was making. And she had grown up eating that way. She was from a very traditional uh, family from Sonora, Mexico. And like, she really loves the program (laughs) because it just gave her license to do everything that made her want to become a chef in the first place, which is all the stuff that her dad and mom were doing in the kitchen as she was a little girl growing up. So that's wow. the third pillar. Do you want me to mention the yeah. other three real quick? Yeah, let's yes. do it. Okay. So the first one is fresh food. Uh, um, so it means salads. Yeah, sure. But anything uncooked. So sushi or eating eggs, you know, like in a blending up some eggs with some, some milk. Oh, and by the way, pasteurized milk is not the same as raw milk. So raw milk is healthier. So that's uh, the first one, just food as it is, as it came from nature, really without cooking or manipulating in any way. Um, the second one is the, the first kind of manipulation probably that humans ever really did, which is fermenting and sprouting your food. Things, these are processes that just happen naturally when you're working with nature. So like, you know, the origin story of cheese, right? Like somebody put some milk in a goat stomach and the, the leather, I mean, the, le- the renin in the stomach uh, turned it into a more solid material and it was, had an interesting taste and boom, cheese um, and all kinds of fermented milk products, right? And then also sprouting. Um, so back in Egypt, where we got our first recipe uh, for beer slash bread or beer bread, it was made from grain that had been stored in the granaries, but like got wet or something and started sprouting. And they probably figured, hmm, maybe we can do something with this. So that was how beer and beer and beer bread and the original first recipe of mankind were <laughs> invented. So that's the second pillar. Then the third, we already talked about meat on the bone. And then the fourth, we didn't even really try this with the Lakers, is organ meats. Um, so self-explanatory why we didn't try it. But if you don't really like things like liver or want to try bone marrow or more exotic things like tripe um, and sweet meats and kidneys, then you can get similar nutrients in egg yolk when the eggs are from pastured 
really well-treated, well-fed chickens. So those four things are all that we really need to know about nutrition. I mean, we need to start there. I mean, maybe that's not all we really need to know, but we absolutely need to start there. And then we can start talking about other finer points like macros and calories and um, the like different types of uh, fatty acids and, and supplements. But really, we got to start with the foundation that was common to every traditional culture and still where people are doing what they're, they learn from their parents in turn from their parents and so on, where the chain is unbroken. You see people doing exactly that stuff everywhere. So many cool things we can watch on YouTube now. Uh, Doc, um, how did you connect this? I mean, like, like you were saying, you were a runner, you're running through injuries, you're having problems. This guy comes out, runs a hundred miles, seems like invincible. And then you go into these four pillars, like, can you help us kind of create the, uh, you know, the evolution story, like the hero's journey to try to get you from like that moment? I mean, was it, uh, you know, fact finding? I, I mean, I know reading the book, I know the the backstory. So I was just was hoping we could kind of paint how you kind of got there. And more importantly, with like your research and just the hero's journey piece of that. Yeah, I had a few heroes of my own. So my first one that I encountered was Weston A. Price, who was a dentist that worked in the 1920s and 30s. And his, his book, Nutrition and Physical Degeneration, should be required reading in medical school. And, and like it's that kind of work that um, if, we had, if we had just continued that, we'd all be living to 100. And uh, you know, very few children would have birth defects. There'd hardly be anybody needing glasses, wearing braces. I mean, we'd all be in much better shape um, because that kind of knowledge is... is uh, what I was talking about, like how nutrition science was farther advanced back then than it is today, in spite of all the fa- all the studies that we've done. Um, Weston A. Price, what he did was very something very important, very fundamental, very basic. He said to himself, "Why?" He was a dentist, right? So dentists had to do a lot of pulling teeth because they were crooked, and crooked teeth would, could kill you back in his, the days before antibiotics and safe anesthesia because you would have to pull a tooth if it was infected. And if you wanted to anesthetize a child, so they weren't screaming and traumatized for life, you might kill them with chloroform or ether or whatever. So, um, he was traumatized, like as a practice, he didn't want to, have to kill his patients. So he was like, goodness gracious, this doesn't make any sense because I think me, Western price, I think that other animals don't have crooked teeth. Why would humans? We're part of nature too. So that like simple thought that we're part of nature too is a whole attitude adjustment that medical science needs to take. So anyway, so what he did that was so amazing was he found basically healthy controls, right? He used the population that the, of his patients as the unhealthy, like, okay, so we know what they're eating, lots of refined flour, some of these, uh, you know, Crisco and um, fake oils, and not a whole ton of fresh food compared to what he knew people like living in the sticks and, you know, on their own were eating. So he, he, he visited areas that were fully isolated that really never had, they didn't have any like white man store. Um, and they, uh, in 11 different places around the world that were isolated. And he had the hypothesis that he would find people that had straight teeth and fewer cavities. And that is indeed what he found. 
And the reason it's so remarkable is because, well, so many reasons, but <laughs> one is that like he really, I think the thing that struck me the most was that he, he says food was the basis of their culture, you know, in parallel with religion. I mean, it was that important, right? Uh, it was intertwined with religion in, uh, in some of the more primary cultures he ran into. Certainly Native Americans um, did that too, uh, where they intertwined like the reason that they were eating something with a spirituality. But anyway, so he, he said they had so much knowledge. They had it passed on for thousands of years to their each gener subsequent generation. And they had really maximized the, uh, the creation of nutritious food. So it, it wasn't just that they, they ate the right things. They also, from the soil up, created an ecosystem that was most capable of generating healthy food to then eat, right? So that like was amazing to me. I mean, that's like, okay, yeah, obviously, like this is all so obvious, but at the same time, why hadn't I heard it before? So I was mad. Um, and, um, and so that was one of my heroes. And then um, another big hero was um, this guy named Stefan Marquat, who, in, who discovered the geometry that we were talking about early earlier, the geometry that pertains to the Fibonacci sequence that's based in this ratio called five, 1.1618 and forever and ever into infinity. Stefan Marquat um, was also oddly enough, uh, the same type of doctor as Weston Price. He was a dental surgeon, like a facial, maxillofacial. So his job, he was interested in this himself because like people would have come in with gunshot wounds or their face was like obliterated. And he would be like, all right, is there some sort of a blueprint here? Like, how am I going to put this back, this person's face back together in a functional way? And that was a, a brilliant thought, right? And so he just kept looking and looking until he found the answer. And he was really good at math. And he created this ge ge geometric like blueprint for the perfect face. And it is, it's based on Fibonacci. Without Fibonacci, you can't create this mask. So what that told me was that we think people who are beautiful are beautiful because they have fantastic genetics. Doesn't mean they're better people. Doesn't mean they're kind or moral. Doesn't mean that they even ate very well, but it means that their genetics are giving them an advantage and and it puts them the advantages that they grow in harmony with the physics of the universe. So like, I think that's really cool. Yeah. Well, there, there was a whole thing with beauty where, um, they laid the, uh, do you say Marquez or Marquette? Marquette. Uh, Marquette. Marquette. Yeah. You lay that Marquette mask and you actually laid it on different celebrities or people we deem to be beautiful and, uh, their faces lined up perfectly. And uh, that was actually really impactful for me because uh, at the time I was living in Orange County and I kept encountering people that had had plastic surgery done. And when you look at their face, you know that something's wrong. <laughs> and like it, it, it was weird to me where I was like, man, like uh, every time I look at somebody, um, you know, especially in Orange County where it's like, you know, uh, plastic surgery is super prevalent. 
I could see that something was wrong. And actually that piece of your book actually made a ton of sense, especially with the idea of symmetry, because if the eye is looking for symmetry and we're looking for balance and somebody does something like they do one little tweak that all of a sudden doesn't fit within, you know, this mask and what we understand with the Fibonacci sequence and the deal, something looks odd and you look at them and you don't know what's odd. You just know that something's wrong. And, um, I have a, a a buddy who's a real uh, prominent artist and I, and he actually, we were sitting at dinner and he was like ripping all these people apart. He's like, that guy's had his eyes done. He's had this. I'm like, how the hell do you know all this? He's like, dude, I'm an artist. And he's like, and I, and I painted portraits. And he's like, my entire life is looking for beauty and symmetry and I can see it within their faces. And I, it, it, it was one of those like weird connections where I was like, let me tell you about this book I read. And uh, it, it, it almost makes sense to the point where I'm surprised that more people that get plastic surgery done don't, you know, take a shot of their face and almost have the doctor be like, hey, here's some adjustments we could make to maybe make you more beautiful or what you might look like if we did these changes. You know, Stephen Marquardt went around doing presentations for that very purpose. He was trying to educate other plastic surgeons and most of the time from the plastic surgeons in the biz, he would get this like amazing response. Like this is going to change my practice going forward. You have revolutionized everything for mm-hmm. me. Thank you. But in, um, you know, the, 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 the world of science is bizarre because there's so many egos in it, I guess. And, and lots of people were offended by the idea that some people have like an inborn advantage. Like there's a lot of people who don't think that we, that like there's, there was any validity to what Stefan Marquat was saying. He, he thought it was just completely biased. He thought they thought it was um, just based on average. Like the, the, the most attractive person is the average looking person, which makes no sense. I mean, if you've ever yeah, been on a dating makes, site. Yeah. That makes uh, so little sense. Because what happens is, um, and this is something you'd see all the time, like uh, women go in and they get their lips done and all of a sudden like the lips are too big for the face and the nose is out of this and you're looking at them and you're like, this can't look good. And uh, I like, and it it was interesting to me that um, while I read about it in the book, I'd never heard about it anywhere else. And I actually had a neighbor uh, that was a real high-end plastic surgeon and I talked to him about it. He had never heard about it. Yeah. So Mark Watt, I think got really disheartened by that kind of a response because, you know, if you're a scientist, like it's like heartbreaking, you know, this is your work and the haters out there can really take it out of you. And so what he did was he kind of dove back and tried to create like a model for the whole body just to kind of justify it. But I, I feel like, um, it took the wind out of his sails and he stopped presenting. And, and then there were a lot of critiques that came out in the literature of the Mark Watt mask that just, you know, kept making all these almost bordering on racist claims because it, he, they were like Eurocentric, which is not true. I mean, I'm sorry. He, he included all races. Um, but I, I feel like whenever you're talking about looks, you're just in our society, you're just drawing bile from people who don't want to hear it for whatever reason. You know, they just don't want to hear that other people maybe have an advantage over them or something. I, d- I don't know. It's just like, well, isn't that just the way the world works? I mean, uh, <laughs> I'm six, six. Uh, I didn't even realize, and this is something that's a joke with uh, Charles and Tex, uh, who are a little shorter than me. I didn't know a that there little? was oh, yeah, no, <laughs> significantly, uh, my, my brothers and I are all tall. I played in the NFL. Everybody was tall. So I didn't know that there was so much discrimination against short dudes. 
Whoa, so short I, kings. Short kings. I feel ah. sorry, and I, uh, I I stand proud with my short king brothers on this. <laughs> but uh, I like I didn't even know this, and uh, to the point where there was a research study they did recently where they found that if a a man um, if a guy was six foot, his value for an individual was like I, I think they said like a like sixty two thousand dollars if the guy was six foot. The same. Uh, value for a guy that's five seven was like two hundred forty four thousand for like when girls were talking about like salaries what they would date uh, and they did this across I think like a pretty big significant deal and I'm reading this and I'm like god damn like so we have already these preconceived notions set up on this and um, the one that really blew my mind was you started laying the Marquez Marquette no Marquois mass on the on the Weston Price pictures because uh, Weston Price took pictures of all the people that he went, which is really amazing. Um, I think the thing personally, and this is just a side note, what's hurt the Weston Price movement is really the Weston Price Foundation. And they're kind of wacky. They're kind of like, you know, kind of prickly extremists. And I think that might've hurt him a little bit because I I read his book and was, you know, uh, went through his work after reading it in yours. And um, it's genius. I mean, it made so much sense to me. I never even questioned it. Thank you and for saying then, that because a lot of people like look up Weston Price and they'll see like he's on Quack Watch and stuff like that. And yeah. you're you're totally right. I mean, it, Weston Price was a, a medical doctor, uh, but the Weston Price Foundation has kind of taken on other issues that yeah. they've molded him together with stuff, and it's just been it, bad. Yeah, it, it's turned him. into this weird, and then you know uh, the Marcola stuff, which is like what sucks is when uh, these guys do amazing work and then a few little things they kind of attach to were kind of like a little on the questionable side. And then instantly it just overshadows everything they do. And then it's like, they just get tinted with this, like with this piece. I mean, it's like the, it's like the Weston price stuff. Uh, when you were actually doing the Marquard mask on top of the Weston price people, that was like a huge explosion in my mind. Cause I mean, here are these people that are not connected, different races, different parts of the world that have no connection. And yet the one thing that was universally true was the symmetry within the face. And the only thing is, I mean, it can't be genetics or, I mean, it is genetics, but like, what's the common denominator? And it was the food. It was the fact that every one of these pillars or every one of these groups that Western price looked at, you know, and what's wild too is um, the macronutrient ratios were slightly different for everybody. I mean, you have like the uh, uh, Maasai warrior that are eating a diet of, you know, meat, blood, and and milk. And then, you you know, you go to the Inuits and, you know, they're primarily fat and it's kind of like based upon regions. But everything was kind of unique or, I'm sorry, was, was interrelated in terms of those different pillars. It just, so that's when people get all wrapped around the axle about talking about uh, macro, uh, macronutrient ratios. Our thing has always been like, we can't talk about macros until you start talking about food quality. And once you discuss food quality and we get that settled down, now we can start kind of skinning and doing it. But there's not even worse having a conversation unless we can establish this is the food you need to eat. Absolutely. Right. I mean, that that is the foundational principle. And another one of my heroes, actually, that helped me get to the point where I, I recognized those those four pillars was um, actually food wise, bigger factor than um, even than Weston Price was Anthony Bourdain. So <clears throat> you guys probably know who he is, but like yes, so tragic. Um, but uh, so yeah, at the time that I was doing like all of this research, he had this show called no reservations and no reservations was had a structure that was different than his other shows. And that was 
like he would always go, he would go to all these different countries and he would be, um, you know, toured around by some foodie person and a foodie person would take him to this same sequence. They would start out like uh, with uh, street food. They would start out, then they would go on to like some fancy food and, uh, you know, maybe a few iterations of each of those, but they would often end up in some kind of a like home, like where granny's been cooking all day and they have a completely full on traditional style food. And it was there that I saw the same repeating patterns. It was, they always had some kind of meat on the bone. They often had a lot of raw stuff, uh, like raw meat, things that, you know, would be sacrilegious with our, uh, health agencies, supposed health agencies. Um, you know, that's where I just started to see that pattern and the fermented food and the meats, the fresh stuff and, you know, all respectful of their own ecosystem. And, and like, my favorite part of it was just like the love of doing it and sharing it, right? This is what we eat. Like that is such a powerful phrase when it's said by somebody who's giving you something that they're proud of, right? And the reason I hate Ansel Keys, the guy that you mentioned earlier so much that with a 1958 study who I was mentioning as like he engineered the American Heart Association in his whole career. Ansel Keys, the reason I hate him is because he took that away from us. He took the love of food away because he said, you can't have saturated fat. And if you're saying saturated fat is unhealthy, then you take away like all animal fat. If you take away animal fat, you start to take away every meal because you're taking away meat on the bone, you're taking away organ meats. And very often you're, you're taking away like some of the basic fundamental fresh food, like the Inuit, they eat just raw seal a lot. So, so, um, when you take, it's like the perfect thing he could have said to destroy humanity's like relationship with food and the natural world itself. So that's why I think Ansel Keys is one of the most evil people that's ever lived. Amen. I, uh, I, I couldn't agree more. I mean, and then you even take it a step further where if you remove saturated fat and especially if you start promoting a low saturated fat, uh, which ends up being a low protein diet. Now you're looking at uh, a lot of very unhealthy androgen profile. And, you know, I mean, you're, you're not going to have high testosterone. You're not going to have uh, a very healthy androgen profile as a man. If you eat a low saturated, low protein diet, um, like it, the problems that we're seeing from Ansel Keys, I mean, you're talking, I mean, I see it second and third order and have fought against this and basically spoken against it. I mean, when I was at the chiefs, our nutritionist who came in and worked with Tony Gonzalez, they wrote a book together that was all basically plant-based. And when they pitched it to me, I was like, dude, uh, first of all, this is the exact opposite. Uh, I want to eat the animals that eat this diet. And I raged against it. And I was like, dude, this is bullshit. And uh, I've still argued for years on this. Well, a lot of that was the, the basis of the power athlete nutrition that we aim to teach and put out. Yeah. Uh, yeah. So, I mean, uh, the nutrition that we've taught since, I mean, since I started teaching in 2009 is based upon uh, the book that I read from you, um, you know, Vince Garanda, Stone Age Diet, Mauro De Pasquale. I mean, the people that I worked with through my NFL career. And uh, it's just been amazing to me that um, you'll watch all these athletes who have a ton of success. And then all of a sudden something happens and they want to kind of spin into this vegan approach, which to me is uh, is just shows a short expiration on their careers. And then it's always like, oh, I feel great. I'm like, it just doesn't work. And so um, I'm, I'm with you on uh, on the Ansel Keys being you know, a terrible individual. And I'm a huge Anthony Bourdain fan. Whenever people ask you, Hey, who's the one person you'd want to sit next to on an airport or on an airplane? It's always Anthony Bourdain. 
because for the mere fact that I would hope he would invite me to go eat because I've watched no reservations and I always think, God damn it, they need to sell this as a tour. I would love to have gone and been like the plus one for him. Oh, wow. Yeah, that would be awesome. You know, one of the reasons this is a small aside, but it's totally related to nutrition. Um, I think that uh, he had a bit of a decline in his last years, right, which led to his ultimate demise um, by suicide for those people who don't know. Um, I read that in 2014, he was taking a drug category of drugs called a statin to lower cholesterol. And um, if you watch the documentary that recently came out about him, I think it came out of like almost a year ago now, but um, you can see people talking about how he just wasn't himself. And he was like, kind of, kind of an asshole sometimes to his like girlfriend. And um, I, what I saw was a man who was experiencing a brain disorder that was undiagnosed. And it was very likely due to the statin, or at least the statin was the last straw, right? Like, I mean, he didn't exactly have a, a great, um, diet for a lot of his life. Cause he was a, probably drank a lot of alcohol, certainly did a lot of drugs. Um, and then all the travel, you know, increasingly around more and, seed oils and cigarettes. He and, was, yeah. Uh, yeah. So he was a heroin addict, uh, alcoholic. I mean, smoked cigarettes. I mean, you know, so he, he burned the candle, uh, at both ends. I mean, early on, but then he got super healthy. I mean, he was a you know big jits jujitsu practitioner and health and wellness and this. And I think um, you know maybe he got stuck in that train. And uh, yeah, I mean, the, uh, what's amazing to me is that whole statin market, which is you know been a multi-trillion-dollar industry, is built off of a foundation of broken science, one that's been disproven. And it's almost like we didn't tell the drug companies and we didn't tell the doctors. Yes. No, that, I mean, it was never actually proven. Right. And it was just sort of adopted by force. And this is part of the whole Ansel Keys and his, all of his connections with Harvard and Walter Willett and very influential people still today living um, that doctors just never question. And, and so, uh, you know, when I, I always have to kind of warn people when they start eating healthy, your cholesterol is going to go up and just be ready for that and be ready for having a conversation with your doctor that you're following a different principle right now. And you're not interested <laughs> in your, you know, what your cholesterol levels are the, the way that he is. Um, but yeah, it's a big part of what pe keeps people, um, you know, kind of in this food experiment, like what, uh, in, um, my second book, the fat burn fix, I talk about how basically the infusion of seed oils into the food supply is a human experiment. Like these are newfangled things and you're forcing them on us. It's hard to avoid them. Now we're living in an experiment and we have lots of data showing that our current diet is not as healthy as what our diets were in the past. And whenever people say, Oh yeah, can't you design a study and just prove this or that? Um, I always like to just say, first of all, we've got lots of studies that have already done that. Um, and no one's paying attention to those, but the biggest one is the one that we're all like part of and observing, even if we're not in it anymore, stuck in it. Um, and part of what keeps people trapped, this is the connection to what we were talking about with cholesterol and Anthony Bourdain. Part of what keeps people trapped is that when you go off seed oils and start eating healthy fats, yes, your cholesterol levels are going to go up, 
because that's the whole reason seed oils were sold as healthy in the first place. In the 60s and 70s, they made claims that they were healthy because they lower your cholesterol, you know, assuming that cholesterol is a problem. Chris Masterjohn, I mean, this is over 10 years ago at the Ancestral Health Symposium. Chris Masterjohn gave an incredible presentation on lipoproteins and the fact that like when triglycerides are low and the lipoproteins uh, or, you know, uh, not as many and like, you know, the, uh, what is it? Um, the density of the cholesterol is extremely fluffy. We don't even have issues when all of a sudden, you know, triglycerides go high, more lipoproteins and the cholesterol gets extremely small and kind of sticky and it attaches in the artery walls. We have problems. And so there's this idea of like, you know, cholesterol is not necessarily a problem. It's all these other extenuating factors that make it an issue where if you remove those and it's like, if somebody's cholesterol is high and their triglycerides are super low, it becomes a non-factor. I mean, that was over 10 years ago. Yeah, uh, yeah, yeah, exactly. Like there's, it keeps being disproven this cholesterol theory. And yes, like that is absolutely like getting, getting the right idea. Um, There's something that I call the lipoprotein cycle. And uh, what, uh, what having a high triglyceride to low HDL ratio, that's the numbers you should pay attention to. You want your high, I'm sorry, high HDL and low triglyceride. What that means is that your body's delivering these fats cleanly. Uh, it's, it's getting, uh, the, the fat that you eat is getting delivered to your body cells. And when your body's, um, full of the seed oils, your body fat specifically is full of the seed oils, then so are your lipoproteins and they oxidize and that's the problem. So it's, it's the oxidation that makes them sticky. And the, 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 you know, he's saying kind of the same thing, but from a different direction, that's why they end up being small because um, they're actually getting just like sort of burnt up and shriveling up and getting smaller. They're sort of remnants of themselves. So, but it's not the small size that causes the problem. It's the seed oils. Mm -hmm. So no matter how high your cholesterol is, once you've gotten the seed oils out of your body fat, your cholesterol, your your LDL particles, they can't hurt you. So how long does it take? I mean, um, uh, you know, like you said, I mean, everything has seed oils in it. I mean, I, you know, like when you flip around, look at the package, uh, like I can't, it's amazing to me, the stuff that I've looked at, like, uh, I bought some protein cookies for my kids. We just traveled. Uh, that's why I'm so tan. We were in Costa Rica for like 10 days. And um, I was looking in the back and it's like everything has seed oil. Anything like, uh, and these are, you know, uh, vegan, paleo, the whole, I mean, have every one of these tags and there is some form of seed oil in everything. They use it as a binder and it's uh, it's next to impossible to avoid it. So if somebody's able to cut that out, how long do you think it takes the body to detox? And is there anything that they can do to kind of speed that up? Yes. In fact, the entire Fat Burn Fix book was written to do exactly that. Because if you try certain things and depending on your relationship with food and just how bad your metabolism has been affected by the seed oils, you may not succeed on some of these popular, like for example, keto or fasting. Some people just don't thrive and they're really not ready for it yet. So the fat burn fix helps rehabilitate your metabolism in the most efficient and complete way possible. And, um, if you follow that, like, let's say, you know, you're, you're, uh, 40 and well, the age doesn't really matter as much as your weight and how long you've been eating seed oils, um, and the current level of seed oils in your body fat. So let's say you're 40 years old, you weigh hundred, 180 pounds, you're five foot five woman, and you have 20% <laughs> polyunsaturated fatty acids from seed oils in your body fat. 
that number needs to be less than five. We don't have a real direct way of testing it currently other than getting a biopsy and sending it off to a research lab. That's it, not very practical. So, um, so, uh, but, so everyone's kind of estimating it. How long does it take? Um, and the, we know that if you're a normal weight, your, uh, the fat or the molecules in your body fat re get replaced like every 18 months. So it takes years to completely clean it out. And that can sound depressing, but the fact is that you start feeling a lot better the minute you stop eating these things because they've been destroying your digestive system and your, your gut flora and, um, you know, your liver. Uh, and once you start eating, you know, real wholesome food, you get the raw materials to protect yourself better against the remaining, um, oxidative stress, which is what the seed oils in your body fat cause to your body. It's this imbalance in homeostasis called oxidative stress. It's kind of like a driver of inflammation in every known disease, but your body can handle it better once um, your diet is better because the raw materials are made out of good food, you know, high protein foods, lots of minerals, stuff like that. Yeah, no, I, I've been calling uh, your, was your third pillar meat on the bone. I've been calling it the predator diet. <laughs> where uh, I tell people, I'm like, you know, like you've seen the predator. He's like trying to rip meat off the bone. The more, uh, the more you can cook things on the bone, one, the, the meat tastes better when you cook it on the bone, but also like the, uh, uh, the primal nature, especially thinking of my kids, like ripping meat off of the bone, we eat ribs. Um, I think it just fixes a lot of the problems and also just makes the food taste a hell of a lot better. <laughs> Absolutely. Yeah. <laughs> like get all those good flavors. You're leaching minerals out of the bone. You're leaching glycosaminoglycans, which actually have a little bit of sugar in them, but it's not the kind of sugar that will raise your blood sugar, but it does have that beautiful taste. So yes, listen with, to your instincts. With, with the, the Lakers, I pulled up the infographic uh, that I found online and your aim was to help them avoid these big bad three. So it was a very performance driven diet. That's why, that's why I love it so much. But then the big bad three that you're aiming to get these players to avoid, they can all feel and experience and connect with right away. So we had fatigue, inflammation, and then for these basketball players, joint pain. So did you find connecting to those help attract this diet or was it more so the taste, the feel, and the experience for these guys? Well, it had to be multi-pronged attack because yeah. it's always being challenged by like, they may have a personal dietitian or a personal chef or, and everybody has their own ideas of what healthy food is, right? So we had to like constantly remind them of, of, you know, the philosophy behind it. And, um, and definitely they were, you know, one of the meetings that were, I was presenting, like somebody was doing some chit chat in the background and Kobe was like, you know, knocking on the table and he was like, <laughs> you know, pay attention. This is important. So mm -hmm. it, like he was all bought in. Right. And, um, the, the more, uh, the older athletes were more bought in because they had struggled more with their health and they knew that it really did matter. The, the younger athletes kind of, um, not all of them, but you know, they have this idea that they're invincible, right? Because they felt like they weren't paying any particular attention to what they were doing, but things have just worked out for them with their health and their body and their development and their physique and all, and all that. Um, you know, that's genetics, right? <laughs> 
and maybe luck, like maybe the, you know, their, their grandmother made lots of meat for them or somebody cooked really good, um, at least high protein foods for them. But, um, but yeah, it was a, uh, it was always a battle because it's always a battle. Like when people don't really prioritize food, they don't know our, our culture doesn't, doesn't emphasize real food. So, so, you know, our culture is really not, not interested in this and they want to be cool. They don't want to be like the nerd that's paying attention and fussing over what they eat. Right. That's kind of, kind of, uh, the negative way of looking at <laughs> nutrition that, is sometimes more prevalent, you know, in certain organizations than others, right? Like some from the top down, it's yes, this stuff matters and we're optimizing. And when you, the way that you, uh, John have branded it, like the predator diet, that's like very important. That's, well, I wish uh, I thought of that. Well, it, it, it was, uh, um, just kind of a joke in that, you know, I, I always like the movie, the predator, <laughs> and uh, I always kind of home thought I hoped one day to be the predator, but uh, well, all those dudes are on the predator diet. Yeah, they're on the predator diet. But um, so when I went to the the uh, I got drafted to the Philadelphia Eagles, and when I first got there, the food was absolutely dog shit. Like it was like uh, to the point where I would get up in the morning or the the night before I was packing my own lunch because the food was so awful. It was like cold cuts and like Philly steak sandwiches, kind of lunch deal. And then we ended up, um, they built a training facility. And since Andy Reid likes to eat, I mean, obviously he's super heavy. He ended up hiring a world-class chef to come in, um, you know, poached him from some uh, restaurant, brought him in. And uh, I met the dude and <clears throat> the guy's food was impeccable to the point where I would bring him things in the morning. Like I'd bring him a turkey, I'd bring him a roast and he would cook it during the, over the course of the day. And then I would take it home. Yeah, and, uh, right. and then I, I got into a contract dispute and went to the Kansas City Chiefs which uh, I didn't think food could get worse. Theirs was way worse. Uh, how they fed us was like, uh, I should have called the Geneva Convention and like fucking got them in the Nuremberg trials for the way they fed us. And I actually said to them, like, how the fuck are you going to feel the championship team feeding your players like this? And you know what? They're, they were all focused on the, do- on the bottom line. So um, at this point, I had to just kind of take words in, or take it into my own hands. And, uh, you know, I ended up finding a meal delivery service, started yeah. cooking all my own stuff and just providing it and was literally just fucking outraged that they would have multi-million dollar professional athletes and feed them this poorly. Now, since Andy Reid's now gone to the Chiefs, I'm sure it's much better. Like I said, he likes to eat. But um, it just goes to show that, uh, you know, it's kind of like um, I think some professional teams – they want to give the appearance for the fans that they're trying to win. But at the end of the day, it's small things that really go into winning. And when people always ask me, like, hey, why'd you guys win so many games at the uh, at the Eagles versus the Chiefs? I always tell them, I'm like, dude, when you feed your players pretty well and you put them up in nice facilities, uh, you travel on nice planes, when you do all those things, uh, players tend to win. And they were like, oh, they can't be that simple. I'm like, I played for the Patriots. <laughs> the food was impeccable. The travel was nice. and they t- And like all of those things. Um, and you know, it, it's kind of reminds me a little bit of just like environmental stress when all of a sudden that stuff goes away and I'm not up every night trying to pack my own meals. Cause I know I'm taken care of. It allows me to focus on those other things. So, I mean, it's great to hear the Lakers did it, but, uh, there's still, I mean, maybe today, uh, you know, 10, 11 years later, it's a little di- different, but man, uh, there were some really lean, dark times and then having different nutrition people come in and try to pitch you on this vegan approach. And I even remember telling the one gal, I'm like, dude, you're barking up the wrong tree. I'm like, dude, uh, um, uh, there is, um, 
you know, the only thing that needs to be a vegan is a cow because they're the only ones that can legitimately turn this grass into calories for me to consume. So I like to eat vegan things, but I'm not a vegan in any mind. And I just like the science is broken. And um, and it's amazing to me that they'll keep spinning this bullshit after it's been disproven over and over again. And uh, I mean, even like the Game Changers movie comes out and, you know, they're over there trying to spin the blood down. They're like, this blood is cloudy. This isn't. And I'm like, well, why do we all assume that the blood shouldn't be cloudy? Exactly. I mean, I mean, what should we have? Our blood should be like, look like water. Is that what we want? <laughs> well, it, I mean, but but there's a pretty clear connection between, uh, you know, and uh, like when I go get my blood work done, uh, my testosterone levels and everything has always been good. I mean, to the point where I always ask my doc, I'm like, is it time to start taking anything? Can we do some hormone replacement? He's like, no, this shit's fine. <laughs> I'm like, uh, well, I'm, I'm ready whenever you're there. He's like, dude, you're good. And the amount of people that I've done consults with guys in their twenties and thirties. Cause one part of the thing we do in terms of like yep. nutrition coaching. And I do a lot of like performance stuff with individuals, they get their blood work. And I'm like, dude, uh, the, the, your blood work looks like shit. You're, uh, you know, sex binding blood and hormones through the roof. Your testosterone's low. I mean, you've got all of these issues and I can tell you that, uh, you know, these things tend to fix themselves when all of a sudden people start lifting weights, you start prioritizing protein. We start looking at like ripping meat off of the bone and start following some of these things. Everything tends to fix itself. So it's something that we've seen for over a decade, uh, to the point like where it just isn't necessarily conjecture. It's the truth. And, you know, like, you know, re reading your book was so impactful. So I, I thank you for writing it. I mean, it, uh, it had answered a lot of questions. And then like we were talking about the idea of athleticism, which, um, God, what was the name of the guy? Um, at the Ancestral Health Symposium, the year I spoke, uh, Dr. Lieberman, who was the guy that invented the barefoot running okay. um, from Harvard. Mm -hmm. Yeah, he spoke. And uh, he, it was really fascinating as he was discussing fitness and he was talking about performance. But the one that was really cool was he brought up, um, they found some fossilized footprints in like a lake bed in Australia. And he was going through that these guys, like basically what it was, it was seven dudes that were running, chasing an animal. Uh, the one, uh, the one that they had the clearest one would have like a size 13 foot and they were running, uh, over a mile through this lake bed, chasing an animal at a speed close to what Usain Bolt ran his hundred meters in. Wow. <laughs> and so his whole thing was these guys were barefoot. They were chasing an animal and there was multiples of these individuals. So it was multiple Usain Bolts randomly running through a lake bed in Australia, you know, and they were fossilized. So how, you know, however long that ago was, but this idea of like barefoot running and they were actually accelerating, which was more interesting. So this idea that somewhere in antiquity, there were individuals that were as, you know, a group of individuals that were as fast as this random individual or as Usain Bolt that were big and strong, strong size, 13 feet, you know, strong feet, the whole deal. And so, um, you know, it, in his case was like, why are we de-evolving? Is it shoes? Is it food? Is it nutrition? Is it science? Is it be, we become so educated that we don't have to do the mundane tasks? And uh, I think it's a little bit of everything. I can tell you that sort of physique does not happen on a vegan diet. <laughs> it's just no. not possible. You can't grow big enough. But I, I well, I mean, I, you know, it's, it's been a really great conversation, but I wanted to say thank you for being a role model because, you know, somebody like you successful in sports and, you know, tough six foot six, your word and what you do carries a lot of weight just because of like our instinctive, like, oh, well, this person looks, you know, strong and tough. Maybe I should listen. Um, and, and what you're doing that I think is really, uh, you know, maybe not unique, but really missing is talking about the value of food and just being willing to learn and cook for yourself, take responsibility and not have it all be boiling down to like muscle milk and protein powders, but actual food. 
because that's what we actually need. <laughs> we don't need powders. There's a lot of reasons why, you know, protein powder was going to be a separate chapter in my book, Deep Nutrition, but it was too big already. It was too much. <laughs> well, what, uh, what I mean, um, uh, me personally, uh, I ended up finding like a, a, a beef isolate kind of um, protein powder. I mm -hmm. think it's made of beef. Uh, that I'll take, you know, first thing in the morning before I train. But uh, I'm not a huge fan of whey or or any of those whey proteins. Man, they yeah. have destroyed my stomach to the point where like it, it feels like a rock in there, and I'm like, dude, I cannot take this stuff. And uh, it's uh, uh, it just feels like um, I don't know. I mean, I like like we we run into this whole deal where people are, you know, everybody's busy, you know, regardless of how much improvement and convenience we've given ourselves, everybody's just more and more busy. So I kind of understand. But like the fact that people are consuming more than maybe, you know, 10, 20 percent of their total calories from liquid just feels like a broken well, deal yeah. for us. Uh, so I came to this as normal college athlete, took health sciences classes. And then in 2009, had the opportunity to hear John and Rob Wolf speak together on performance nutrition. So that concept of, OK, I've just did this for general health as a collegiate athlete. Now they were speaking, OK, here's how you eat to optimize nutrition because your gut is the window to the immune system. Immune yeah. system is what heals your muscles. That was new, completely new and changed the whole trajectory of, I mean, how I approach everything. Well, the way that I kind of couched it was, um, you know, based off of the X-Men Wolverine. Like I was like, what is Wolverine's superpower? And everybody's like, well, he heals so fast. He's indestructible. And like, he has a hyper developed immune system. His immune system allows him to heal in real time. So, like, let's try to figure out how to look at the immune system, which became the small intestine, which is the window of the immune system, and analyzing somebody's small intestine and the small intestine health. So, actually, at that original seminar, Rob came. And then, side note, you mentioned Kelly Starrett. Kelly worked for me on my first CrossFit football seminar and did so well that actually CrossFit gave him his own seminar. And that's what actually launched Mobility Wad in his entire company. Oh, wow. So, yeah, yeah. So, when, when I retired from the NFL and I um, – well, actually, when I got hurt my last year – had surgery, I ended up sleeping on Kelly's couch for about uh, almost th two or three weeks till while he was rehabbing my knee. So I've known Kelly, I mean, one of my oldest friends and then Rob Wolf as well. So uh, okay. these guys have been, you know, huge pillars, not only in the performance, but also the health space. And um, yeah, I mean, but yeah, the, uh, uh, so what was wild was when we, when I started, when I retired from the NFL and we went out and started teaching, I didn't necessarily know what the technology that I was providing for individuals but I got the opportunity to go teach hundreds of seminars and over time the technology became very clear, which was the idea of fostering developing athleticism. And because we were able to break athleticism down into different pieces, which is actually within the lower body, if you look at the X, Y, and Z axis is really just a sequence of three movements and the ability to master those three movements and then put them back together to speak a language of athleticism is what we know is athleticism. And there's no definitive way to define it, but like, just like the Mark, uh, Mark mask, when you see it, you know, it, you just know that somebody's better looking. And that's the same thing with athleticism. You can turn on, um, you know, football game, baseball, whatever. And you see somebody do something amazing. You don't know why it is. You just know that it's different than what you've seen before. And it's, it, and it's, it's, uh, it's peaceful. It's good. It's exciting to see. It's just like, uh, I've told the story, like, like, you can see somebody who's really good looking and they walk into a room and it doesn't matter if it's a man or woman, everybody looks and they know that they're different than some, than the rest of the population. And it I, happens I mean, to me all the time. I, I know it happens to you, <laughs> uh, but I, I, I mean, it's, it's uh, like, I, 
I can think of numerous times where I've seen both guys and girls walk in and just the room stops. And um, it's because, you know, and it's like, well, why are they better looking? You know, it's not it's not it's not that their face is mirrors, you know, because obviously if you have you've ever seen them take somebody's like half of their face and then they just replicate it on their side, they're never better looking. So it's this idea of symmetry. And, um, you know, there was a really cool documentary that Ferrari did on the construction of like one of, I think it was their 599, where they went through and they looked at all this, like they painted them in like organic light and they looked at these colors and sounds. And like, that was also really impactful from this idea of like, you can understand symmetry and you can model it and you can, and, and if you understand the pieces, which allowed us, allows me to go back and create this idea of how to foster and develop athleticism through the training space and looking at the blueprint of athleticism laying it on top of training programs and individuals and trying to make them more efficient, but without, you know, the nutrition piece and, um, you know, the work you've done, like, I don't think we would have got halfway as far as we've done. Well, gosh, thank you for saying that. And also uh, just like, thanks for having a chick on, right. Because it's, uh, that we're sort of out of place in the tough guy world a little bit, but, um, also we're also the reason that you guys want to look tough. So yeah, well, we- <laughs> We wouldn't be here a hundred percent, but, um, it's, uh, so, um, I hate to say it, like how much pushback have you gotten? Like, I mean, uh, I'm, I'm a converted believer because this has been the way that I've eaten and this is the way I've raised my kids. And this is like my daily approach. But like, as you've written this, uh, like what's the pushback? Like what's the knives out? Like what have you had to encounter and fight against? So there's two big things. One is just kind of like the whole, uh, idea that, <clears throat> that disease exists or that like another way to put it is like health is better than disease. So like there's people who read and reviewed deep nutrition in a negative way. And they didn't like that. I was suggesting autism was a disease. They didn't like that. I was even bringing up the idea that some people are, are more attractive than others. They just didn't like that. And so they called me a racist and a Nazi. So that's probably like, I don't know how I could get worse than that, but (laughs) so that's probably the worst thing that's happened. But fortunately Uh, there's not too many people like most people kind of are reasonable and they understand that, um, you know, I'm not a racist or a Nazi. I'm trying to help people be healthier. Nazis didn't do that. And I don't think racists do that either. So, um, so most people kind of like, I think just bleep over, bleep over that unless they're kind of aligned with that whole, what's become a political aspect of our politics now, which is, you know, there's really no science. Everything is what you think it is. Everything's fluid, all that kind of nonsense. Um, So that's like one. And then the other thing is just like the simple idea that um, medicine, you know, I'm a medical doctor and I um, am saying that that medical doctors do not learn anything useful about nutrition and were dangerous when it comes to preventative cardiology, right? So Obviously, I'm going to get a lot of pushback from people because of that. Um, but there, the the, uh, the the thing is, uh, most people who try it feel better, right? So it's uh, I kind of ignore that until because I'm like, okay, well, eventually you'll come around, and when you do, you'll feel better. <laughs> Well, I mean, didn't, didn't, uh, like you take the Hippocratic oath and didn't, uh, um, isn't it, uh, Hippocrates, didn't he say, let food be or let food be thy medicine and medicine be thy food. 
I yes, mean, absolutely. It's it's along those lines. It's just that what is healthy food, right? So that's like the where all of the controversy comes from. And so many people have heard from the doctors that they've known for years that they trust that you have to follow this like plant-based Mediterranean diet, avoid red meat most of the time, and all 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 of that. So for me to suggest something that their trusted doctor who they have a personal relationship with um, is saying is incorrect, it puts them in a place of emotional turmoil because they're like, well, my doctor's giving me this drug. So for simplicity, they either have to just like reject everything I'm saying and forget about it or um, accept it and then figure out what to do with their doctor. <laughs> so it's hard, you know, it's, not, it's it's easier just to reject the, you know, just to reject the new information. And that's where like the most pushback really is, is just like, this is new. I don't know enough people who are doing it yet. Um, I haven't heard, you know, I've heard of the keto diet. It's a little bit like that, but I also have heard the keto diet's not healthy. So, you know, it's, it's mostly just the new, the newness to them. And so like, that's why it's, I'm so happy that folks who are super influential, like you guys are pushing that ideology because it's really what it is. It's an ideology. It's not more before the details, right? The de the details are how exactly to do it so that you can feel the benefits. But the ideology, I think really has to come first for most people. They have to buy in. It's pretty interesting in terms of like, uh, um, you know, you listen to the science, but I think sometimes there are individuals that just defy and just uh, like for me personally, some of the anecdotal stuff really makes a ton of sense. Like, uh, um, like the first time when I met, um, um, what's his name? Um, uh, 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 the doctor that wrote the evolutionary fitness, um, uh, well, um, it, it'll come to me in a second. Not Cordain, um, right? You're not no, 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 no. It was, uh, before Cordain, the, um, UC Irvine. Oh, God damn it. I can't believe I'm totally drawing a blank, but, uh, like Dr. Michael Rose was another one when I heard him speak at AHS. I mean, he, he gets up and he's talking about his stuff with, uh, you know, fruit, uh, fruit flies and gives his whole talk. And all of a sudden when he started talking about his research starting in 1959, I had to pull out my phone and Google how old he was, uh, because, uh, the guy looked like he was in his like late forties. Turns out he was in his late sixties. Wow. And like at that point I was like, okay, Michael Rose, but it was, um, uh, this, uh, he looks like Superman's granddad. Um, he was in his eighties and, uh, he looked absolutely amazing. I mean, like physical, like moved well and everything. And so I think sometimes you run into people that, uh, have done this and like live this life and, you know, are not only very accomplished, but actually physically look the part. Um, you know, it's like you've run into, I've, I've run into older vegans and they look absolutely terrible. And I'm like, I don't know whatever you're doing, but you're aging in dog years. And so, uh, <laughs> You know, and if you think about muscle mass being the largest determining factor for survival over the greatest amount of time, you know, high protein diet from nutrient dense foods seems to be the biggest. I mean, I know it to be the case, you know, your greatest opportunity to do this. So it, um, it just like, there's some anecdotal stuff to me that, you know, when you read all the research, just a few of those anecdotal things just make a ton of sense. Yeah. And the plural of anecdote is data, they say, so yeah. not to be ignored. Yeah. So if, uh, you know, when you're getting pushback and it, it, it's always funny too. I've, uh, I've gotten a little bit of pushback from a few people where they're, um, you know, like, Oh, you know, the, the diet that you guys are recommending is very elitist. 
uh, you know, and it's, uh, you know, some form of privilege. And I'm like, well, wait a minute, if it's based off of like what these traditional tribes through Africa and up to the Inuits and all over the world, I mean, like how elitist could that be? If anything, the, the greatest form of white privilege and the greatest, most woke elitist diet ever won is one that allows you to, to survive without actually eating foods that have any benefit, like eating a vegan diet. Tell those folks that next time they're taking an Uber um, or a taxi uh, to talk to the driver and ask them what country they're from and what the healthiest people, like where they lived. Was it the cities or was it the outskirts where they were considered, you know, dirt poor and, um, you know, uh, raised all their own foods? Because I do that. I do that. It's always a very exciting conversation. Um, you know, people universally, they tell me, oh, yeah, the healthy people, they don't live in the cities. They're the, the healthy people. We call them, you know, the hill people, whatever, you know, this was Ghana, Africa. Um, uh, we call them the hill people. It's these, oh, these guys, they're like, they, they do everything on their own. They raise their own cows. They, you know, uh, mostly, mostly it's meat stuff because it's easy on I mean, marginal land. It's easier for animals to be the intermediary, right? Collect all the good nutrients in the land for us. Um, but like universally, that's what I hear. So the, I mean, this is what people used to do. It's not your fault. It's not my fault that our society makes it, uh, like America itself is almost a food desert, right? Like it's just the whole country now is almost, you could say a food desert because how, if you define <clears throat> junk food as anything with vegetable oil in it, well, where, what are you going to buy now? <laughs> like you have to buy a raw raw you know materials and cook it for yourself is is that an elitist thing cooking for yourself or is that a choice you can make well, uh, <laughs> like um uh my buddy matt vincent uh who we've had on this podcast and uh for hate brand um he orders all of his food like he doesn't cook he, he orders everything through doordash and these different food apps and uh he was amazed that I've never ordered food online and had it delivered to my house. And I'm like, no, no, I go buy the food and I cook it at the house. And he's like, no, no, they can just bring it to you. And I'm like, yeah, but that doesn't teach my kids anything. And he's like, no, no, you just order the food and they cook it for you. And I'm like, yeah, but I actually like to cook. I cook in cast iron pans that I've seasoned. Uh, like everything goes through, there's a process and I like, I like to go get it. And even though, you know, we tried what, well, I, I do want to highlight, you know, coach needs to coach people that are just getting into cooking for themselves. We do provide, some nutrition protocols, yeah. uh, interactive spreadsheets, video walkthroughs from the big guy yeah. and how to guides, foods, nutrition benefits. So help them take ownership within their kitchen of their performance. Yeah. No, uh, for me, when I was little, uh, like probably the time I was about five or six, um, my mom, uh, I grew up with two older brothers and my mom told me, she's like, uh, and my mom was a good cook. She still is. Um, she said that if I don't learn to cook, I was going to starve because women, mm-hmm. uh, you know, with the sexual revolution and the whole deal, the women out of the home, she, my mom was still, uh, you know, stayed at home mom. She's like, you're going to have to learn to cook or you're going to starve. <laughs> wow. And so uh, I was her sous chef. Like I cut everything, I prepped everything and I did it. And I basically like was my mom's uh, cooking assistant until the point where I was maybe 10 or 11 years old. And then I was you know, like more than happy to be able to cook. And I still, I mean, I cook every day for my kids and I make all of her stuff every day. Um, you know, my wife obviously helps too, but, uh, anything that's like meat related or anything that's protein, I do that. And she does all the other stuff, but it's, uh, you know, to the point where, you know, like Augustus ranch, uh, you know, uh, Brian, st- you Brian's know, nose to tail, nose to tail, stay classy. So we have different ranches. There's one in South, uh, about an hour South of us. I've visited. I actually physically like to go out and visit the ranch where we get meat from. Or if I know the individuals, like the guys in Montana that have the best buffalo at State Classy, uh, have been friends of ours. You know, Brian's knows the tale. So for me, 
Uh, I want a connection with the people that are actually harvesting and I want to go visit their animals. I want to see how they're doing. And I want to see the collection and I want to buy direct from them. I mean, we'll obviously in a pinch go to HEB or, or Whole Foods if we have to. But for me, it's a big piece of like the connection and taking the kids and then seeing it and, um, you know, like how it's cooked, uh, you know, different ways to prepare. But I mean, for me, that's uh, that's so fundamental in terms of our living. And then people are like, well, what about the time piece? And I'm like, our ancestors like their entire day waking up was about somehow gathering food to consume. Uh, I, I was reading, um, what's the book breath where the guy uh, was talking about our ancestors were because of the food had to chew for like, you know, five to six hours a day. And then the development within the nostrils and the mouth. And, you know, now we just eat this super soft, hyper palatable food and haven't developed any, which also goes into within your book. They talked about the spreading of the nose and the jaw being a, uh, making people allow or easier to breathe kind of a deal. Yeah. I mean, it's a choice and you know, all, the hardest thing to change is your mind, but once you do that, then everything else is easier by definition. Right. <laughs> so it's all you have to do is it's the mindset. And, and I'm glad that you brought that up about like it's elitist and all this kind of stuff. And uh, because it's, only our society that's calling it that. It's fundamentally what made us human. And it's a reflection of our society now that we think that we're, we're better in some way than having to cook. It's a, it's a necessity. <laughs> and, and you're not saying that um, it's something optional. You're saying it's, it's something necessary. Like the elitist stuff is, is totally different. Like you need to cook healthy food and show your family how to cook healthy food. That's basic. Okay. That's fundamental. What's elitist is, Oh, don't be a farmer. You, you need to go to college because you know, manual labor is beneath you. That's elitist. And that's partly why we have this problem that we do. Uh, so if people are curious and like, uh, th this is something that we get into. I mean, I sat a consult with a guy the other day on it. Like, like what's like, you know, I mean, uh, I'm big on, um, you know, I, I like wholesale changes, but like for a lot of people, they can't, but like, where can people start? Like if they're curious, I mean, obviously your book, the Western price stuff, they, you know, uh, you know, Rob's, uh, you know, sacred cows, an incredible book to read and to understand a bigger piece of the problem. But like, how do people start? Like, where do they get started? And more importantly, how do they begin this journey on trying to reclaim their health and actually unfuck their diet is the way I, I constantly refer to people where I'm like, dude, you got to unfuck your training, unfuck your diet. And once we get those done, we're going to problem and excuse me on the profanity, but <laughs> like that's at least moving towards the shore of where we need to go. So well, I also work with people one-on-one -on -one, and when I do that, I give like kind of customized answers for, for each person because it depends on what their skills are, what their background is, what their expectations are. So, you know, it's really, it's a big question. So it's hard to give like a blanket answer for all of that. But whatever, what I do to find the answer is start with something that they like, the taste of, that they enjoy and that they don't feel is overwhelming. And, and then I have them kind of expand on that skill set, right? Like let's say they love their mom's, uh, some kind of soup or guacamole, something really simple. Okay, well, think of more things you can put the guacamole on, you know, that's actual food, right? Like melt some cheese on a corn tortilla in the microwave, put guacamole in that, put it on eggs, whatever, you know, but there's, there's a, it's, it's kind of a fun part of what I do when I work with people because 
the answer is not a blanket answer anymore. Not anymore. Like maybe it could have been a while back, but we've, our society has deteriorated so far that people don't have skills. They don't know. Some people don't even know what like celery is, right? Uh, they, they certainly, some people don't know how they can boil water. They can put stuff in the microwave, but they can't like, they don't know how to steam vegetables, right? So our society has so deteriorated and our skills have so like lapsed that um, you have to meet people where they are. And that's part of like, uh, you know, we should develop, like, we should all work together somehow. I don't know how, uh, <laughs> it never happened, but to develop like a coaching program to actually help people do this because it's fun. <laughs> no, I, um, uh, the idea of cooking and, uh, I, I agree with you when you brought up the, um, um, Anthony Bourdain stuff, like I've always been such a fan of that. No reservations. The fact that he would go to just these, like, I, I think it was in Vietnam or Thailand or something. And they took him places and they presented food where I would have hesitated and he had none. They were like, Hey, we're going to drink this Cobra blood. You're going to do this. We're going to eat raw pork. Like the dude, like zero, like not even a hesitation. He was the first one to eat it. And I always remember like thinking like I would have had to ask at least a few questions and seen somebody like I never like being the first person off of the bus. Mm -mm. Uh, like I always wait for somebody to give it a try first and like see, you know, I'm like, hey, try this. Let me see how it works out for you. But like his willingness and I'm always like, man, this this can't be the first take. You must have <laughs> asked a question. But like his willingness to go in and you're right. They, they always take him someplace local, take some nice. And then they would always go to like the chef's house and, uh, you know, cook. And it would just be like the understanding of sharing a meal. And um, I think what's pretty fascinating now is we've taken this idea of like sharing a meal and the social aspect of like cooking and, and just, you know, like that piece. And we've just replaced it with convenience, which is effectively deteriorating our society. And like, you know, the idea, like my mom saying, hey, you're going to have to learn to cook. And I learned how to make all of her stuff. And, uh, you know, that piece and like I yell at my kids constantly. I'm like, dude, come in the kitchen, like help. You have to help. And they're more happy just to sit down and eat. And I'm like, believe me, I like to eat too. But like at the end of the day, I'm not always going to be here and you're going to have to know how to feed yourself. Good for you. Yeah. Cause you know, it's a, you almost do have to be like a little bit of a rebel these days to, to be healthy because society does not want you to be healthy. So you have to do your own like miniature rebellion in your house to try and oh, keep your family well, healthy. We, we are a part of that. Well, yeah. I mean, we've been <laughs> the home gym revolution yeah. rebellion in your garage. Yeah. Well, we were, um, based out of California and about five, six years ago, uh, we ended up having kind of a unsolicited, you know, offer and on our house and basically, uh, let some guy in a map like Lamborghini buy our house in cash. And we ended up moving here to Texas and bought a bunch of acreage. And, you know, where do you see this is, you know, the power athlete ranch. And, uh, this is, you know, in a barn and then we have a building with a gym and everything's encased on this property. But just because, uh, I didn't want to live it. Um, we wanted to come into a more kind of, or what we were hoping was more of a rural area, but since COVID they straight built like 3000 houses and we moved from being in the country. They basically built the city to us where now we're kind of in a bustling metropolis, but and we still have a big alcove. We live what we teach, which is awesome because we're finding our people, whether it's uh, the home gym I was mentioning. So we provide them training programs, in line with their fitness goal, building muscle, athleticism, and then the nutrition does play a big part of it because we know the value, the platform for which athleticism can be accelerated, nutrition, recovery, and then helping them to teach them to cook and take ownership of that. Yeah. So again, a lot of people are coming to us from 
CrossFit experiences or just, you know, high school athletics. So they do have a passion for this. We aim to hone it and put performance, you know, it's performance for the people that is power athlete and really empower them. But we do love connecting with people like you, Dr. Kate, that really emphasize in our, our experts within this. And then are excellent people to chat with yeah. that then help them socially accept this and explain to their peers and family, hey, yeah, this is the way. Right. It is the way. <laughs> yeah, no. And, and um, I mean, th- this is cool for me since we had Brian on and uh, we were like, hey, man, like we'd like to reach out to some more people. And he named he was like, oh, I know, you know, Dr. Kate. And I'm like, dude, I've been pinching like pinching the information and teaching stuff out of her book for over a decade at her seminars. It's great to finally connect. And uh, I just, yeah, man, I, I feel really just very grateful that we got a chance to connect and more importantly, uh, let you know that uh, your book was extremely impactful to me and ended up being oh. a huge piece and a cornerstone of how we developed your stuff based off of the information in it. Uh, it was uh, so, but uh, I, unlike the majority of the internet, I like to give attribution and always tell people, cause I always think I stand on the shoulders of giants. Like whenever I talk about this stuff, like this is, you know, this is how I was influenced. This is where I got it. Whereas I think now everybody just claims they invented everything, which to me actually makes you less qualified. If you look like you have good allies and you stand on the shoulders of giants, then you look more accomplished. Whereas now people are like, no, I decided food. I just invented this cooking. I invented this question. (laughs) I invented the question mark, the ring push up. I mean, but that's what kind of is crazy for me, especially on the internet, especially when I hear people pitch stuff or I'll hear their, their deal. I'm like, ah, yeah, I know exactly where that came from. And this person's claiming it instead of saying, Hey, this is how I was influenced. This is where this information, I think it's really good. And I'm going to run with it, which I think just gives you greater strength. It does. It's like you're part of a legacy, not just a random blip, you know, a fad, but part Uh, of something that has a long history, actually like infinite. Dr. Kate, I got one final question here in line with the Anthony Bourdain, where he went to people's homes, they welcomed him in. If you were to host a dinner party or host a guest, what would you cook to show off your skills and then experience? (laughs) Um, I really don't have a lot of great skills. It's my husband that does all the hard cooking. But um, what I'm really skilled at is um, making like meals in two minutes or less. (laughs) <laughs> so by combining, combining strange stuff. So like just the other day, I got some cod livers from Norwegia. No, that's not a country. Norway. Norway. <laughs> Thank you. Um, and uh, so cod livers in their own oil. And I was like, what can I do with these? Um, so I mixed them up with uh, cottage cheese and dehydrated garlic powder. And it was good. And that took about 30 minutes and it was really nutritious. I mean, it was so filling. Um, uh, yeah, cod liver packed from Norway, not, not Norwegia, um, is, uh, is actually quite good. Uh, like the, it didn't taste livery. It, it tasted like, uh, like mildly smoked, um, oysters. <laughs> Strange. There's a there's a place here in in Austin called Salt and Time that uh, has some really amazing. Been there. (laughs) Okay. Uh, My favorite part is they sell different types of pate. So they have like 50 types of pate. They have beef. I mean, they have so many types. So um, not every week, but at least twice a month, we'll drive down there and I'll either get something bitching like they have all these, uh, you know, big tomahawk bone in ribeyes and different stuff and different cuts of meat. Um, But they have all these different pates. And so I'll go in and get like 
just a like a whole bunch. And uh, what I found is they usually like a, the beef one usually has a pretty big fat cap on it. So what I'll end up doing is I cut that off and then I use that to actually uh, do like a reverse sear. So I'll cook like a steak in that. I know now my mouth is watering. So Charles, like I uh, Charles, uh, so Charles, who's our who's our uh, producer on the other side, you can't see him. Uh, we have this idea of doing a cooking show, and like every time I go in and do this stuff, I'm like I write it down. I'm like Charles, and I got to do this one. But like, there's so many cool things, and uh, for me, um, whenever people, you know, because it's become more fashionable, whether it was like Rhonda Patrick or whoever. Um, you know, Dr. Rhonda, um, who was on Joe Rogan. And then, you know, you got the, the liver weirdo dude. Um, you know, it's become more fashionable now people pushing organ meats. And the one question I always get is like, how do you include organ meats? And my whole deal is like, go find different pates. Like we've been eating pates for, since I was a little kid, my mom, you know, like would get them with, uh, you know, crackers or some cheese or whatever, like find some different pates and start with those. And then once you kind of develop your taste buds, you know, hearts are easy. You can do heart tacos in like the, um, in the slow cooker. Um, we used to do, my mom would make tongue sandwiches. Should she do tongue and slice it with uh, mustard on like pieces of bread? Uh, I can't do kidneys, uh, like kidneys. I, I can eat liver, but I like liver raw. Um, you cut up in little cubes, freeze it and you cut wow. it into little tiny cubes. So I found liver is a lot easier if you freeze it, cut it into little tiny cubes and eat like one or two ounces once a week. Uh, they don't taste like anything. Um, well, you got to eat it like a duck. I think well, chew it. Well, there, there's, ah. uh, uh, I don't know the validity. Matt Lalonde told me this years ago that there's a high iron content in liver. And so when you cook it too much, uh, it ends up destroying the nutrient density or the value of it. So eating it raw is actually better, but I don't like raw liver. So I eat it frozen. <laughs> so like that piece. So, I mean, there's different ways to kind of get into this. Um, like uh, we would do, my, my roommate in college was um, a future farmer of America, grew up on a farm. So he would come back with all these uh, um, Rocky Mountain oysters testicles and we put them in a crock pot with uh, barbecue sauce and we would eat those. So I think there's different ways to, to kind of get organ meats back in, but organ meats have been a cornerstone of nutrition for humanity for as long as we've remembered. And it's only within the last, you know, let's say 50, 40, 50 years where now all of a sudden people have turned their, turned their nose to them. So, I mean, you can also take organ meats and have them ground up with ground beef and cook them that way. That's another way. So I think it's just being, it's, just, it, it's really, you're basically limited on your creativity and there's so many opportunities to do it. So it's, uh, it's easy to get in. Yeah, it's fun. I mean, if you think of it as a challenge, you know, like your own little, uh, uh, the hell's kitchen type of challenge. <laughs> Yeah, because that's how I feel. Like every time I come up with something uh, and it tastes good, I'm like, yay. <laughs> you know, it's like you discovered something that didn't exist before, maybe. <laughs> oh, it just came back to me. Art Devaney. Art Devaney, oh, who yes, I was thinking I've of. Me, you know, yeah. if you know Art, uh, wrote Evolutionary Fitness, extremely impactful uh, piece. But when I met him, he was in, uh, he's, at the time I met him, he was in his 80s. He's even older than that. But the dude was shredded, played professional baseball when he was young, like doctor. And the guy was in such phenomenal shape. I referred to him as uh, uh, Superman's granddad. And so like, if like I run into somebody like him, uh, you know, like uh, him or, you know, Michael Rose too. I mean, those individuals to me, just the physical appearance of those individuals, because I'm sure you've met with a lot of doctors where they're giving you this nutrition advice and you're like, I'm not taking any advice from this dude. I mean, I've run into that all, all too often with, with people, with doctors where they're giving nutrition advice. So I'm like, dude, you're in terrible shape and you look awful. Why would I take your advice? So it's, we have these reactions for a reason, you know, it's kind of, it is related to common sense. 
So, you know, we, a lot of times we call common sense shallow, but um, if you it's not down, so common anymore. Yeah. That's my biggest so, thing. Mm -hmm, that's totally true. <laughs> so, so doc, if people want to learn more, where's the easiest way to get a hold of you or how can they find more? My website is drkate.com and it's D-R-C-A-T-E.com. Um, and I have my socials connected to that, but I'm, I'm also on like Twitter more so than Instagram and uh, Facebook also, but it's all connected through my website. There's lots of great information there, shopping resources, how to decide which of my three fantastic books you want to buy first. <laughs> and um, the supplements, like uh, those are my, some of that uh, shopping list and the supplements page are some of the most popular. because it's Well, they can get your books on Amazon. Um, if you guys want to start where I did, just check out Deep Nutrition, which I think came out in 2008. That the I original. Yes, that's yeah, right. The original. Yeah, original. The uh, latest is 2017. Yeah. So my, my last year in the NFL was 2008. And then I got hurt and retired in 09. And that's when I met Dr. Bueller. And he actually gave me that book and said, hey, I want you to read this. And um, yeah, that was yeah, excellent. So if you want to check out our books, Amazon, and uh, go to Dr. Kate with a C. Dot com. Uh, dot com and uh, learn more. Also so, with a C. Also with a C. All right. Thank you very much, Dr. Kate. Yeah, thank you. Thank you, guys. It's been so much fun talking to you both. Now it's time for you to empower your performance. You can learn more about Dr. Kate Shanahan by following her on Instagram at Dr. Kate, that's C-A-T-E, Shanahan. Until next time, bye!